All right, here we go. Welcome to the Junto Podcast, a podcast from the bloggers at earlyamericanists.com. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of early American history at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Today, as professors across the country start to make tweaks to their syllabi ahead of the upcoming semester, we're going to be discussing approaches to teaching early American history. In particular, we're going to be addressing the challenges of teaching the first half of the US history survey. That is, the introductory course that's aimed at giving college students a general grounding in some of the key themes and events in American history. I'm joined today by three other Junto bloggers. First up, Michael Hattam is a PhD student and teaching fellow at Yale University. It's good to have you here, Michael. Hello, Ken. I'm also joined by Roy Rogers, a PhD candidate at the Cooney Graduate Centre and graduate teaching fellow at Lehman College. Welcome, Roy. Hi, Ken. Nice to see you. And finally, we're pleased to have Joe Edelman joining us today. Joe received his PhD from Johns Hopkins University and is currently visiting assistant professor at Framingham State University. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Glad to be here. So, to start off with, one of the key issues in teaching the survey is deciding when to begin and end the chronological sweep of the course. Often, that's not a decision in the hands of the person actually teaching the survey. Instead, departments and colleges make that decision for us. But deciding when and where to end an introductory course on early American history involves tough choices. Last month, Joe wrote a post on the Junto about the 10,000 BC question, whether survey courses should cover the history of Native Americans prior to European invasion of North America. Joe, perhaps you'd like to start the discussion by talking a little bit more about that dilemma. I'm assuming that many of our listeners have read the post, so I, I don't want to totally rehash it. But to, for those who haven't read it, uh, the problem I faced in thinking about how to start the survey was about framing. And it started, thinking started from where I, what I, the activity I do the first day of class, which is to ask students to think about themselves. Where would you start the class? And a lot of them, I teach in Massachusetts, a lot of them say 1620 with the Pilgrims. That's what they got in elementary school and high school. Somebody says 1607, says Jamestown. Somebody says 1492, Columbus. Uh, somebody maybe says 1776. We start with independence. And then we talk about, you know, the ways in which that thinking about each of those starting points changes the framing device. If it's 1776, it's a story of a nation. If it's 1620, it's a story of religious freedom as the motivating factor of families coming, uh, that sort of thing. If it's 1607, there's a lot more capitalism, there's slavery, all of a sudden it, it, the story looks like that a little bit more. It's 1492, you're thinking more about the Atlantic world, it's not even English anymore. And then I draw a line on the chalkboard as far to the left as I can go and write down 10,000 BC and say, well, what if we talk about when North America was first inhabited? And that gets us through the first day. The second day, I do a lecture that essentially, and I talked about this in the blog post, is Native American history from 10,000 BC to 1491. 
And the reason I wrote the blog post and wanted to think about it more is that that's actually an incredibly unwieldy thing to do. It brings together a lot of things into one place to try and get students to think about North America outside of the perspective of the English settlers. I don't assign Dan Richter's facing East from Indian country, but I do. I tell his story with credit of sitting in St. Louis and how he came to write a book called Facing East from Indian Country. That's the sort of hook for that lecture is what happens to American history if we look that way? Well, I mean, I, I start my course um, in a similar way, except I don't, don't do that sort of uh, prologue lecture about chronology. I start with two, my first two lectures are um, what I call sort of prologues. And we, I do the land bridge to 1491. And we, but I spend most of the time really talking about sort of what sort of were the dominant sort of overall cultural themes of Native American history uh, right before uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And then the next day or the next week, we go into um, what early modern Europe looked like. And I, I mean, I definitely, I just, to give credit, I mean, I up and stole this approach from both Alan Taylor and Dan Richter, particularly um, Richter's uh, more recent book uh, after facing East from Indian country um, before the revolution. Uh, and I found it actually to be extremely effective because uh, the way I judge sometimes effective teaching, particularly when it comes to material from the lecture, is how good test answers are about these questions. And I found that actually the material from those two lectures uh, really actually does a good job of setting uh, sort of groundwork for our discussions of sort of encounters between native groups and European uh, colonists and imperialists say, up through and beyond the American Revolution. I start mine a little bit later. I, I start mine with the European imaginations of empire, and I do see how that makes it a very different story. I mean, I partially do it for the reason that the first time I taught the survey was on the quarter system. And so even if I was devoting the first two lectures to those things, many of the themes would have been less foregrounded even by the end of the week. And I thought that would give less coherence to what I was talking about. Um, but the other one is that I'm slightly concerned in doing that, that the first week's lectures don't have quite the clear connection to what's going on later in the course than, um, than I might like. I, I prefer to try and set up themes of imperial power and colonial development in that first week, because that's what I'll be talking about. Um, I should add at this point, I also teach a course on Native American history. So I do have that as an important part of what I teach then. But I've not been quite sure that that's the best way of approaching the start of a survey. I tend to agree slightly more with Ken. I appreciate the perspective of starting the survey at, say, 10,000 BC and getting this uh, pre-settlement history down. But uh, it, it's useful in a sense, but I wonder so, sometimes that it's something that students will think about for a few days, but not really carry with them throughout the course, sort of what Ken was talking about. And I think that in a survey, when you're so incredibly pressed for time, which is sort of the recurrent theme the survey instructor, it doesn't necessarily strike me as the most effective use of the limited classroom time that we have. One of the reasons I do it, and I will add that like Ken, I 
last year taught a Native American history class, and then we'll add that I'm moving away, I think, from 10,000 BC as the starting point, probably to 1491, and using a model similar to what Roy described of, let's look at the Native world, let's look at the European world. But the sort of pedagogical thinking behind go all the way back to 10,000 BC and start the course with Native Americans is to try to shake students out of the high school narrative, out of the popular history narrative of Jamestown and Plymouth. And then we automatically land in Philadelphia in 1776 and the story moves on. It's really about shaking students out of where they have been for the most part and trying to get them to think fresh about early American history. Now, I also, I don't disagree with Michael. I think there's things, there's ways in which it could be integrated better, I know, into my course in terms of dragging that through the rest of the semester and getting them to do that. But that's the thinking behind it, is really just get students out of the traditional mold of Jamestown and Plymouth, and that's where we start. I like to think that... Starting off with European imaginings of empire does something similar. In some ways, it shows that settlements don't really take place the way that they were meant to work out. And actually, within that story, it's Native American agents who are really important within that. That you know, What's one of the reasons that Virginia fails? Well, partially it's because they expect goals, but also partially because they have a lot of difficulty dealing with a more powerful Native American force at the time. Same sort of question with the difficulties that face uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, especially as you get to King Philip's War. And so I try and take that more focused viewpoint. I hope it shakes them out of the high school narrative, but certainly introduces I think a different emphasis from what high schoolers might have thought previously, which is about how the settlers themselves conceived of settlement. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think, though, by starting with Native Americans, though, it does, I think, a better job of getting away from Jamestown and getting away from sort of uh, Plymouth and Boston and Massachusetts Bay, because one of the key things that I've noticed, uh, or that my students come into my course with is sort of like a uniqueness uh, to sort of the British Empire, to Jamestown, to Plymouth. And by, I think, starting with Native Americans and starting with Europeans the way I do, and then I go into the Spanish, or then I go into the Columbian Exchange and then the Spanish and French empires, I mean, it's a while before we get to actually get to British North America. When we do get there, I think it contextualizes it in a way that I get, I think, students really come to appreciate, I think, by the time we get to the American Revolution. So that's the start of the survey dealt with. But at the other end, the key question is how to approach the Civil War. And it seems to me that there's at least three possible end dates that we can consider there. Um, ending the survey at 1861 with the outbreak of war, or 1865 with the war coming to a close, or in 1877, the traditional date of the end of Reconstruction. Now, clearly that point between 61 and 77 is a key turning point in American history, and it's very awkward in choosing any one of those dates as something that brings an end or a starting point to the broader narrative of a course. Uh, I'm going to 
avoid answering that question first. Um, Roy, do you have any thoughts on that? I'll bite the bullet first, and uh, by picking none of those options, um, I end the course in 63, 1863 with emancipation, because, um, and I set that up as slavery being one of the key themes, both from you know, the beginning of European colonization through the American Revolution into the antebellum period and blah, 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 up to the Civil War. And then I, and I talked to my students, we talk a lot, and we get this from um, this Jim Oaks book that we read, this the importance of emancipation on so many different levels and how transformative a moment that is. And then when I teach the second half of the survey, I pick up at that moment. I pick up with emancipation, explain it in its context to the students who didn't take the first half, and then we move forward. Uh, which I think, I found it to be pretty effective so far in the sort of one full year I've been able to do this, but I really do think that emancipation is a really clear break, at least for the way that I've organized the course. Yeah, I'm actually curious, Roy, if CUNY has a set date, because at, at Framingham, the course catalog says the first half of the survey is United States History to Reconstruction. So in a sense, my personal desires, and I think I might actually go to the end of Reconstruction anyway, but everybody at Framingham who teaches the first half of the survey is responsible for getting through Reconstruction because the second half of the survey is called U.S. History Since Reconstruction. Well, at Lehman, the first half of the survey uh, has a wonderful title, Foundations of the United States. And uh, talking with the, the chair there, um, we have a lot of flexibility. We're supposed to take it through to the Civil War. And most of my colleagues at Lehman teach, it's sort of a variable thing. Some of them teach 261, some of them teach to 65. So it was very open-ended, and I sort of uh, you know split the difference when I was considering it. But I mean, it definitely, the reason uh, my initial plan was to end at 65, but when I was writing the course, uh, the first time I taught it, 63 came uh, to make a lot of intellectual and thematic sense for me, and so that's why I ended up choosing it. But we do have a lot of flexibility. It's one of the th many things I like about teaching at Lehman. If it was up to me, I'd finish at 1861. I don't think that's possibly because I take a more explicitly political approach than you do, Roy, in the way that I teach the class. And hopefully that's something that we'll pick up on in, in, in later discussion. But I think that the range of issues that are brought up by the Civil War, and in particular Reconstruction, don't fit particularly easily with the sorts of stories of development that I'm talking about. I mean, in some ways, I think I'm picking up on James McPherson's talk of the Civil War as a second American revolution. And it seems very strange to stop a course quite so abruptly at the end of a revolution that doesn't fit in as easily and indeed raises so many more questions that are much more foundational to late 19th and early 20th century history. Uh, so many textbooks are uh, U.S. history to 1877, those sort of first half textbooks. And I think when you are so pressed for time, that often requires squeezing things in under the wire at the end of the semester. And that ends up giving short shrift to either the Civil War or Reconstruction or the events that precede them. And I think I would be in favor of leaving the Civil War for the start of the second half of the survey. And I might even go further and say to really leaving the crux of the sectionalism conflicts for the second half of the survey. In making the, the sort of structural choice, you're implying to the students that the Civil War is either the culmination of the founding or the result of the founding, 
or the foundation of the modern U.S. nation state in the 20th century. In some sense, it's, of course, both, but it depends on which you want to stress. And I think I would be inclined to leave most of that for the second half. I would just be a little bit skeptical um, that of leaving at least some discussion of the Civil War experience out, because I don't even think it's necessarily a accumulation of the founding, but rather if you're t- talking about so many of the antebellum social, political, cultural conflicts, to leave the Civil War entirely out, I think, is not really to give your students a good sense of such an important experience for that sort of generation of Americans, white and black, that lived through Uh, the Civil War. So I think you have to find a way, I think, to include at least some portion of that experience, maybe with Ken ending to the outbreak of the war uh, or taking it all the way to the end of the war or doing something in between like I do. I mean, I just think you have to give your students a flavor of that if you're even going to slightly give them a sense of what it was like to be an American in the mid-19th century. Right. But what I'm saying is not to leave it out. What I'm saying is to cover it when you have when you can give it more time at the start of the second half rather than crammed in at the end of the first half. So what I'm saying is actually the opposite. It's not to leave it out. It's to save it for a time when you can actually go into it in more depth. My only concern comes from most of my students don't take the second half of the survey. They either take, you know, and or they either take the first half of the survey or they take the second half of the survey. I have about only about a third of the students I've encountered have taken half, uh, both halves. Okay, well, I wanted to pick up on something else that Michael mentioned in his last comments, which was mentioning the use of a textbook and that most textbooks tend to make that join at 1877. Uh, and I think that leads into quite nicely to a, to a discussion on what materials we use in covering the survey both secondary and primary sources. But given that we've mentioned textbooks, let's talk about textbooks for a minute. I mean, what sort of secondary sources, what sort of secondary materials do we use uh, in order to teach the survey? Joe, do you want to pick up on that? My approach so far has been to use a textbook and accompanying reader. And I picked um, Eric Foner's Give Me Liberty, and the accompanying reader is, I think, called Voices of Freedom. Um, and then mix and match in a few articles in terms of secondary sources that I think illuminate particularly particular issues in a little bit more depth and to get students to encounter a variety of historians writing and thinking about topics. Um, so I've had some success with, uh, at the very beginning of the course, Alfred Crosby has an article version of his argument about ecological imperialism that's one of the ways that we talk about encounters um, when we talk about the Salem witch trials, which, again, betrays my uh, position as a Massachusetts teacher of the survey. Um, I, I actually assign an article that John Demos wrote in American Heritage magazine, a version, a very short version of his Entertaining Satan project um, that works very well in complement with uh, some of the statistical analysis that people like Carol Carlson did. Um, We work through those numbers in class, and then they can connect it to uh, what Demos had written, the stories that Demos tells about individual cases 
in that piece. And my favorite secondary source of all actually is, is Jeff Pasley's article in Beyond the Founders, the, the cheese and the words, um, which because Pasley is so out there in arguing that everything is political in, in the early Republic, it really sort of stuns students and leads to a really great discussion. Um, because at that point in the semester, they're warmed up, they can pick out an argument and they all react badly. There's no way that this is politics. Cheese? No, it can't count. Can't be. Um, and it, it actually works really well to go make have them just make a list of the things that he says are politics, and and then have them debate whether it counts and whether or whether it doesn't, and you know push push them to think about about that. Um, so that's really the approach I take: is to take a textbook as background, as sort of the the base narrative, and then build in a few other articles. Um, to color things, to go into a few more issues in depth. Well, if anyone's ever heard me talk about French cheese, they'll know full well how political cheese can be. Um, From my perspective, the first time I taught, I was using Give Me Liberty, and I found it quite frustrating, not necessarily so much in the content as in the fact that students seem to want to use the textbook as a crutch that I'd ask them a question and they'd begin their answers with, well, Fona says, and not really explore in much greater depth. So what I try and do is find a way of dividing that up. Um, And I give sort of three more general books to slightly more period-specific, which are Alan Taylor's American Colonies, Frank Cogliano's Revolutionary America, and Bruce Levine's Half Slave and Half Free and sort of have them as a backbone for what I'm talking about. But then, as you do, clearly, Joe, give some other article-length piece that is normally designed quite explicitly to be in opposition to what the other book is saying, to try and get them interested or at least introduced to the idea of history as an argument, history as analysis, rather than something that is just assembling a given list of historical facts in a certain way. Well, I use a textbook only as a recommended uh, reading for students that want to use the textbook to supplement their studying, to supplement our discussions in classes and the lectures. And I use Alan Brinkley's Unfinished Nation, which I've, uh, which students react pretty well to. But the core uh, sort of secondary stuff that we use in class, I use three monographs. I use Carol Birkin's First Generations. Uh, and uh, last semester I used Susan Branson's Dangerous to Know, which was really well received. And then Jim Oakes's Radical and the Republican is also also good. And we spend a whole class period really doing sort of a mini seminar, tearing these books apart, talking about argumentation. And my students, I found, really enjoy that those days. And I actually look forward to I get my best attendance uh, on the days, actually, uh, that we talk about the books. So um, that's the reading that uh, they have to do in my class. I think I'm more inclined to go the way of Joe. I, I rather like Give Me Liberty and Voices of Freedom as the reader. I think it's convenient, obviously, for the professor. It's structured uh, for students who have a low level of familiarity with the subject. So there we've been talking about three different approaches to using secondary material. Um, But I know one of the things that I try and build into every class that I teach is an introduction to primary sources. 
So I thought we might want to talk about one primary source that we find particularly useful in introducing themes of early American history to our students. Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? In terms of the revolution, per se, I think the most useful primary source is to use the Continental Association of 1774. I don't think that any other document from the revolution drives home the radicalism, the upheaval, the uncertainty, and the contingency of that moment just before independence. And so I find that things in that document, like the price controls, like the capture of uh, local governments, these are things that students tend to be unfamiliar with, survey students tend to be unfamiliar with, and, and can be rather striking. And I would also just add uh, runaway slave advertisements in general. I've seen hundreds of them, and I'm sure you guys have, and I still get a sinking feeling in my stomach when I see and read them, and I think they have a similar effect on students, if not more powerful because of their unfamiliarity with them. And they tend to really drive home the reality of slavery as not just an economic system in which people worked without pay, but a, a social system in which they were actually owned by another human being. I'm going to go with the most successful primary source dealing with the first half of the U.S. survey that I've had is that sort of tried and true uh, man, Frederick Douglass. Um, excerpts from his autobiography always have gone over well with students. And I just, I mean, that's the, that's the clearest primary source that I, I've definitely had success with because I've, I've done other things like the Continental Association and more sort of straightforwardly political documents students tend to not read in my experience or not really read in an interesting way that provokes discussion. But with Douglas uh, and, um, and his autobiography or his uh, uh, 4th of July address, which I've also assigned, um, I've had a lot of success of provoking a lot of really interesting uh, far-reaching discussions. I've also had a lot of success with Frederick Douglass, and it's actually one of two sources that I make students read all of, because I think that if you're going to be a college graduate in America, you should read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. The one I have the most fun with, well, there's two. I make all my students read the Declaration of Independence out loud, which I wrote another blog post about. But the one I have a lot of fun with is I give my students some Parson Weems, some of the biography of George Washington. Um. I had one student, after having read the cherry tree story and, and realizing truth, tell me that I had ruined her childhood. Job <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done. Thank you. But we get into a really good discussion. It's a way to get into a discussion about memory and a way to get into a discussion about, I, I mean, it, it elucidates all sorts of themes from the early 19th century religion and um the veneration of Washington. I have a whole slideshow of, um, you know, pots and pans and upholstery and all sorts of the stuff that people put Washington's image on in that decade after he died that, that helps us talk about it. And we just, we talk about, it gets from politics to religion to morality to a bridge into the, the antebellum reform movements. Um, and then I also get to show, if, if you've never seen the, the Grant Wood painting, Grant Wood's the guy who did American Gothic, he did this wonderful painting of Parson Weems, George Washington. Parson Weems pulling back the curtain on Washington cutting down the cherry tree, and it's a body the size of a boy with the Gilbert Stewart head of Washington, the Washington from the dollar bill, on this little boy's body, um, talking to his father. Um, 
you know, we get to talk about slavery. We talk about the revisions, um, the, the version we read, George just automatically um, assumes guilt and, you know, add in for them that Parson Weems in a later version had Washington throwing himself in front of a slave that his father had assumed had cut the cherry tree. And so Washington, who owned 300 slaves at the time of his death, becomes this anti-slavery advocate. Um, it's just it's a venue to, that's fun because it sort of catches them off guard. They've all heard the story, but they don't know it or know where it comes from. And then it's a, a bridge to talking about a whole lot of issues. And occasionally I get to ruin somebody's childhood. My choice actually goes much further back, right to the start of the survey, and that's the Laws Divine, Moral, and Martial in Jamestown. And I like it, I think particularly because it comes right at the start of the survey, actually. And it's a really good way, a really good document to show students just how much you get out of primary sources. Because the first time that they read it, they think oh, this just means that living under government in colonial Virginia wasn't very nice. But then you look at all the specifics of the provisions, sort of where you are and aren't allowed to chuck out your toilet basin and that sort of thing. And you can construct a really vivid picture of what it must have been like to be in the Jamestown settlement. You can look at the attempt to regulate contact with the Indians very, very carefully. All those sorts of things, just from the one document. And I think it really opens students' minds as to what you can get out of reading a primary source in a way that I'm not really sure that any other document I use is quite so successful in achieving those goals. I guess to try and round the discussion off, one of the things that has come out of the discussion is the slightly different lenses through which we all view our own approach to thinking about survey teaching. Um, Roy, you very clearly foreground issues of gender and of social relations in, in your class. My class, as readers of the blog may well expect, tends to view things through a predominantly political lens as a means of opening up some of those broader questions. So when we're fashioning the course, when we're thinking about what we want to get across in our teaching, what do we think the primary purpose of teaching the survey is? You know, why is it so valuable that professors across the country all give this same introductory course, even if they approach it differently? Why is the survey valuable to an undergraduate? Yeah, there are two key goals, I think, when I teach the survey. The first is to sort of give a general thematic coverage of American history from what I jokingly say to my students the first day from Columbus to Lincoln. And, you know, uh, I mean, I, I really, I know coverage is uh, a much attacked term in, uh, in, in, uh, in approaching the survey, but I, I'm, I do try to cover sort of the entire time period under sort of four or five key themes that we come back to over and over again. But the other major goal is to give them an example of a little bit of what I do as a graduate student, what I do as a historian in training and as a historian uh, as a professional historian, which is that we read three histories and we think about them critically and we think about them in the context of 
the lectures in the context of the discussion and for the students that want to read the textbook in the context of what the textbook says. And that's sort of the two goals to sort of give students the sense of that coverage thematically of things like race, economic change, gender, and a sense of this is what a historian does. This is what when I go home at night, uh, what I do and what um, my fellow professionals do. I think what I would add to that list, because I do something similar in terms of thinking about getting students a basic understanding of early American history and thinking about getting students to think about what it's like to think historically. And I think, Rory, you put it, it really nicely. The one I add to that, and this draws me into the question of audiences, is a little bit of of citizenship or, or civic engagement. Um, at Framingham, I have three audiences in my survey class all at the same time. One are majors or prospective majors, and that's actually really small. I had 140 students last year in the survey across all the sections. I think I had about five who were majors, but it's an entry-level course into the major. You've got to take a 100-level course because before you can get to the 300. A big one at Framingham, which I think I'm required to say was... Uh, founded as a normal school by Horace Mann and so has a 175-year tradition of training educators, is education majors. And a lot of them are elementary education, and this is the history class they're taking. This is it. This is the history class from which they will learn how to teach their first or fifth or third graders about the Pilgrims and Salem, um, about Frederick Douglass, about all these things. And then the third are students taking it for general education credit. They're taking it because they have to. They may have some interest in early American is why they picked that history course in particular. Um, and so I really, and almost all of them, almost to an individual, are from Massachusetts. Um, so the way, the third thing I add in when I'm doing that course is to think about civic engagement in Massachusetts, civic engagement in the country. We're required to teach the Massachusetts Constitution. Sorry, Ken, I actually tell my students that I'd rather teach Pennsylvania, but <laughs> I'm required by state law to teach the Massachusetts Constitution. And at various points in the course, I mean, I think I've brought up the Pilgrims more than anybody else. I've mentioned Salem more than anybody else in this conversation because they're things that happened in Massachusetts. And so I try to connect things and get students to connect things to their everyday lives. But my favorite one, um, it was just July 4th. It, it I was reminded of it was Garrison in 1854 gives the speech where he burns a copy of the Constitution, describes it as a covenant with with hell or covenant with the devil, like exactly which. He did it a mile and a half from the Framingham State Campus. And that just floors students that, you know, some actual interesting historical event happened down the street. So that's really the third piece of it for me in terms of thinking about what the import of the, the class is, is there's so many students. This is the history class they're going to take. And this is the chance to get them to think historically, to get them to think about analyzing the events of the present in the context of some understanding of what the past was like, that, that that's really an opportunity for me not to be missed. Yeah, I think that's really important, the fact that so many of our students won't take another history course, or if they do take another history course, they'll often point back to the survey as the moment that changed their mind. Uh, which is something that I try and think about in terms of 
just the stories that I tell, you know, what are going to entertain people most, what are going to challenge people the most, because the one thing I've definitely found at all the places I've taught is that students are much more engaged, actually, with a class that challenges them than a class that um, just regurgitates things that they already know. I guess I'm echoing what you've said in terms of thinking historically. The other thing that I think is really important is getting them to think in a somewhat argumentative way as well, to get them to realise that you can't just say history is what happened. You know, if there's one question that I get from people outside the profession when I'm telling them that I'm researching the revolution, it's, well, don't we already know what happened in the revolution? Um, isn't, isn't that already something that we know about? And that's certainly an attitude I come up against in a survey class as well, the idea that you should just be teaching facts and testing your students on the knowledge of the facts. And so building in that sense of history as contest, history as something where ideas and outcomes are always up for grabs, is something that I think is incredibly important in terms of a survey class. I wanted to pick up on the idea of teaching being relevant to students' own experiences. One of the things that I find teaching in Illinois is that the first half of the first half of the survey is very geographically removed in many cases from areas that my students might have direct experience with. Um, but then in the second half, of course, Illinois rears its head with a vengeance, um, especially with regards to Lincoln. Um, I often joke that if I ever need a second career, I will take up making bronze statues of stovepipe hats, because I'll certainly find employment in this town. Um, and so the last thing that I want to do is encourage them to think too much more closely about the cult of Lincoln, rather than some of the broader issues that, that come around in the Civil War. Um, I guess that's a slight caricature of what I do. You know, I certainly mention... Elijah Lovejoy in, in Alton, Illinois, which really isn't too far away from here, as a means of, again, bringing home that clear presence of anti-abolitionist violence um, and, in some ways, how ordinary it seemed to 19th century um, residents. But in the survey, I think there's actually quite a lot of value in, in keeping things away from direct experience, especially somewhere where that influence of one particular historical figure is quite so dominant in popular memory as it is here. I want to build on what Ken's saying, because I teach um, in the Bronx, and uh, most of my students are working class uh, immigrant students, um, and I don't actually spend a lot of time in my survey, I'm sort of the opposite of Joe, I don't talk about New York too much. That may be blasphemous to some of the people on uh, the podcast, maybe some of our listeners, but I don't talk a lot about New York. I actually end up talking a lot about Virginia and the South and Pennsylvania as a slop to Ken, um, which, and one of the striking things about my students who in many ways have traveled the world more so than I certainly have, uh, but they haven't traveled the United States very much. Many of them, when I ask, like, we're going to talk about Virginia now, we're talking about Jamestown. How many of you have been to, uh, ever been to Virginia? Maybe two or three people will raise their hand out of 40. You know, how many of you have been to Williamsburg? And maybe one of them, possibly. And so I spend a lot of time describing what it's like to be in Williamsburg in the summer, which is not pleasant. Uh, or, and we, 
when we talk about South Carolina, rice fields, and when we talk about Mississippi, we talk about Illinois, Pennsylvania, I try to sort of give them a sense of what this sort of regional diversity of the United States is like in climate and people, because I have uh, traveled a, a good deal around the United States, and, to, and I think that, that works really well. Uh, I get a lot of like sort of sentences in test answers and papers that students write from descriptions that I've given, which at least I think for a handful of my students that does stick with them. And I think it is very useful to sort of stress parts of the country that are sort of different than them, particularly since so many of my students have a very New York is their primary experience of the United States. I'd like to pick up on that on one piece of that, that thread that, that Ken and Roy working with in terms of talking about direct experience and their good pedagogical reasons why I spent a lot of time talking to Massachusetts, talking about Massachusetts, even as it rankles a native New Yorker to do so. But as Ken and both Roy bring up, the thing that my students struggle with the most, they're almost all from Massachusetts, they're almost all from the North at a minimum, is talking about the 19th century South and trying to get past a sort of, get past the cliched understanding of the slave system and the system of, of the system of slavery to try and actually figure out what was going on, to conceive of how people could think about that. And it's really difficult. I mean, it's difficult for me to teach about slavery because of how awful it is. But it's difficult for my students to process and engage because they've grown up in the North with a Northern sensibility about the 19th century and the end of slavery as part of the story. And so it's something as much as I do try to, to lock into their experience, one of the things I've struggled with and, and have been working to try and figure out how to help my students understand better is to actually understand what's going on in the South because it's both geographically and psychologically so far away from any anything they can understand in their experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to just real quickly build on what Joe is saying, because I think what's interesting with dealing with my students is they have a really good, and slavery in the South and race, is they have a really good understanding of race and how it impacted American history on sort of both halves of the survey. And they come into the sort of class sort of very viscerally understanding that, which makes sense considering many of them live in the Bronx. But they don't really, I think, have a sense in the first half of the U.S. survey just how important slavery was to the development of the United States and how tied it was into capitalist development in the United States, into American expansion. And that is definitely something I think that's a really big revelation because that's definitely one of the key themes in the course, particularly after the American Revolution, and how it was tied into politics and economics. And I think just really building on Joe, giving my northern students that sense, I think, is one of the more pedagogically important things that I do in the first half of the survey. Well, that's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to end by thanking Michael, Roy, and Joe for joining me today. If you like what you've heard here on the Junto podcast, uh, you should also check out our website, which can be found at www.earlyamericanists.com. You can subscribe to our podcasts in iTunes by searching for The Juntocast. And if you have comments about anything that you've heard today, please drop by our website and let us know. Or, alternatively, you can email us at thejuntoblog, is all one word, that's thejuntoblog at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the Junto blog. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.